Welcome, welcome. Well, come in. Kindly step all the way in, please. We hope that this voyage you're about to take, twenty thousand leagues under the sea, will stimulate your interest in the phenomenon of life in the ocean depths. Attention, passengers. We are now ready for boarding. Beginning with row one, followed by two, and then three. Welcome aboard. W Radio. Your information station. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host. Lou Mangello, and this is show number 178 for the week of July 11th, 2010. Walt Disney's Florida Project brought to Orlando the magic of Disneyland and plans that would expand upon that idea to a working city and so much more. And while we've all heard the tales of the trips to the Florida swampland, you may never have heard the stories of some of Walt's original plans for his second theme park. This week, we'll look at the Walt Disney World that almost was with author Chad Emerson and explore some of the untold stories of where in the world Walt Disney World almost came to be. I'll draw a name and randomly call a listener to play fact or fiction where I'll ask 10 true or false trivia questions about Walt Disney World to give them a chance to win some prizes. I'll then play more of your voicemails and have a few more announcements at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. often invite you on the show to board my virtual Wayback Machine and travel back and talk about some of Walt Disney World's history. And along the way, many times we will trace the route back to an attraction or whatever it might be, all the way back to Disneyland, possibly even to the 64-65 World's Fair. And many of you probably know the story of the secret visits to the swamps of Florida and the covert purchases of the land that eventually became Walt Disney World. But what many of you probably don't know is what almost came to be, and uh, and how the views from the Magic Kingdom at one time could have been very, very different. And joining me today to talk about the Walt Disney World that almost was is Chad Emerson. He is the author of Project Future, the inside story behind the creation of Walt Disney World. Chad, welcome to the show. Hi, Lou. Thanks a lot for having me. Chad, too, is a, uh, is a somewhat recovering attorney, so we have the, <laughs> again, there's that Disney and legal connection that keeps on coming back. Yeah, it's, uh, we're all trying to recover and enjoy the magic that we never had at law school. So, <laughs> so we are here um, in the Grand Concourse of um, Disney's Contemporary Resort overlooking Bay Lake. We figured that this was an appropriate uh, place. We actually 
we actually did something this morning that I had never done before. You know, we talk about Disneyland and, and its, its charm and its magic because it's where Walt walked. And people say, well, Walt never visited Walt Disney World. And to a certain degree, that's not really true because this morning we actually went outside and we did stand where Walt stood and, and saw what Walt saw. Yeah, what's really amazing is that Walt lived for uh, several years when they purchased the property. So while they hadn't built anything, there's lots of pictures out out there of him uh, walking the land, which would one day become Epcot or the Magic Kingdom. And he was infatuated with Bay Lake. Loved the idea of this real lake with a real island. And so the ability to go out there and stand behind the contemporary and literally stand where Walt stood. It's one of the few places at Disney World property you can do that. The guests can share the view that Walt shared. Yeah, and I took some pictures from there, and I'll post it uh, in this week's show notes so people can actually go and see what it was that inspired him to choose this location. And, and, you know, we're going to talk today because I think, again, a lot of people may know the story about, well, this maybe wasn't the first place they had chosen uh, as the location for Disneyland East or what would have been his next venture into the theme park industry because despite Disneyland's day one issues, you know, by day two, Chad, Disney was getting letters and proposals and requests from individuals and from cities all along the eastern seaboard to do what he had done literally the day before. Yeah, the real challenge that they ran across is Disneyland was successful attendance-wise but the vast majority of their attendance was coming from west of the Mississippi. And they quickly realized that if we want to capture the East Coast audience, they didn't have Southwest and cheap flights across the country. It was a, it was a journey to get from New York or from Washington, D.C. And so they realized, we have this whole untapped audience in the eastern U.S., east of the Mississippi, and we need to figure out a way to make the sequel to Disneyland something that they can access much more easily. And, and that's when they started looking east. Yeah, I mean, I think Disney said, you know, thanks, but no thanks, we're not really interested, but Walt being the visionary that he was, he knew right off the bat that, yes, he needed to capture the audience and reach out to those people that maybe couldn't make it out to California. Clearly, right off the bat, you're thinking east, northeast, obviously a a big segment of the population is in the northeast. There were concerns right off the bat in, in places that they were going to look. Obviously, things like money, always a concern, and certainly the weather. Yeah, well, they started looking to the eastern real hub in terms of Washington, D.C. and New York. That's where the population was. As as we know, Florida, while it's grown, back then was not very populated. And so even if they went east to Florida, they would have been having to bring people south from there. So they started looking at places like the Meadowlands. Walt spent a ton of time in New York at the prepping for the World's Fair, and they looked at some property there. They looked at Washington, D.C. area. The, the company seems to have almost dating relationship with land in northern Virginia. They almost built America, almost built Disney World. And what happened was that they realized there's a couple of big problems. While you were super close to the population base... The labor costs were much higher than they were going to be in Florida. And the weather. Walt really wanted to build a park which operated year-round and had a large outdoor element. And you can operate a Disney park in a cold climate. Tokyo Disneyland is a great example. It snows at Disneyland there, for real. But there was going to be a real challenge in having a park they could operate year-round and have outdoor attractions and really draw the idea that Walt had. And so that's why, after checking out places like Niagara, went there and visited with his brother and thought about maybe doing an indoor attraction even there, like kind of like they uh, looked at at St. Louis, Walt quickly realized, I have more ideas. I have bigger ideas that can fit inside a building. 
a single building. And so they started looking outdoors and great places like the Meadowlands and Washington, D.C., and even other parts near Richmond and things like that. Great locations close to big population, but just too cold to operate in January. And as somebody who is a uh, New York Giants season ticket holder and endured <laughs> winters in the Meadowlands, I can tell you it is not the most hospitable climate, not just when the Eagles are in town, but weather-wise, not a very hospitable climate, certainly not for a place that you want to take your family on a vacation, because that's what this is. And it's interesting that you mentioned Niagara Falls, because if, if what I understand is correct, this is one of the first times that uh, something starts to happen, something that Walt was doing in Disneyland, which was you start to get a third-party corporation wanting to be part of it. Obviously, Walt created Disneyland because of the partnerships that he made with so many companies that were sponsors, and you still see that in Disneyland and Walt Disney World to this day. In Niagara Falls, if it looks like it's the first company that sort of comes to the table willing to put up money, is, ironically enough, it's Seagram's, the, the alcohol company. Yeah, that's the funny thing. In fact, a lot of the uh, stories about why the St. Louis project was scuttled was the uh, alleged dispute between uh, the Bush family and Walt about whether to serve alcohol in that property. At the same time, he's talking to Seagram's in Niagara. And so the irony is thick. But um, I think what they found was that you had these third-party operators, and Disney had a huge investment in Disneyland, had a lot of confidence after it became successful. But the idea is that someone would put up the money up front that was a great idea, and that would be, allow them to expand uh, more quickly. But just like some of the other projects, Niagara, even though, and we mentioned when we were visiting this morning how Walt loved water. I mean, what, what great role that water plays at Disneyland and his parks, the, the kinetic flow of it. And so obviously Niagara Falls, I mean, that's the faucet of the world there. The idea that building attraction overlooking the falls or near the falls would have been big, would have been huge. But they quickly realized that once again, it just wasn't going to be the scope of what wanted to do next. He was thinking big. Because you got to remember, this, this, this history in our country, we're sending people to the moon and satellites beyond. This was a time of great optimism. And so Walt started thinking big picture. And the big picture wouldn't have been uh, really conducive to a smaller attraction in, in these type areas. Right. I mean, we're looking at, at Lake Buena Vista here. You're talking literally tens of thousands of acres, certainly not what was going to be in the Meadowlands, it wouldn't have been Niagara Falls, or even in one of the sort of next stops along the route, uh, which was Seinborough Hall in Kansas City, where another potential corporate sponsor, um, who to this day still works at Disney, a little more family-friendly, Hallmark, comes to the table. Yeah, Walt had a uh, long relationship with the founder of Hallmark. They'd gotten to know each other real well, and Walt was huge into personal relationships, and that's what made a, a drove a lot of his decision-making. That's almost why he built, or almost built, in 1959 in Palm Beach, because his relationship with John MacArthur. Well, the same held true with Hallmark, and obviously he had a strong affinity for Missouri and the Kansas City area with his early business interests there. And so when there is some talk of building a almost a world showcase type of places of the world attraction in Signboard Hill in the Kansas City area, Walt was really intrigued. Ultimately, the project didn't pan out for a variety of reasons, and he became a consultant for the project. The Signboard Hill got built. It wasn't really the amusement angle they expected. But um, later on, not to uh, around that same time, they actually looked 
and came pretty far along all the way to renderings and, and proposed business deals for the Marceline, the Disney Farm Project in Walt's old family farm. And they had perched it using dummy corporations, as was their uh, uh, habit of doing to you know, prevent speculators, working with a local real decision maker there. They got so far along that it looked like they're going to build the project, and I really think the only reason the Disney Farm Project, which is going to be kind of like this uh, forerunner to almost Animal Kingdom, you see these themes later on playing out, he's going to have an educational animal experience where you're going to interact with animals. Walt passed away, and when he passed away, the Marceline did not become nearly as powerful to the other folks because that, that connection, that influence that Marceline had in Walt's life, I mean, it obviously holds true in every Disneyland, Disney World park that is today. Yeah, we certainly see it, and all of us know Marceline now because of our affinity for the parks. But it's it's very interesting, the thought of maybe having it there in, his, in one of his boyhood hometowns, as well as, like you said, those themes that start to permeate, that go back to his initial, you know, when he sent his brother Roy out to meet with bankers in New York, that initial document that he created proposing Disneyland with alongside the Herb Ryman sketches, a lot of those themes that eventually became Epcot, the park and Animal Kingdom. Here, you have the International Village and things like that. We talk about Walt being a visionary. Certainly, we're, we're talking, you know, so, so long before Walt is world is world. He has a sort of long-term plan in his mind, and as these ideas come to, to pass with him, like imagining today, none of these good ideas ever goes away because we eventually see them here. Yeah, it's funny. You look back, and we tried to really carry this narrative through the book to some degree is that the idea of an animal-centric uh, entertainment experience, Marceline Farm, Signboard Hill, the International Village type experience, and even right down to city making. You saw early on the, the Palm Beach proposed project 1959. That's where the term City of Tomorrow was really coined by Buzz Price's term. So these ideas which were birthed early on, it's amazing how so many of them congealed as part of Disney World. Yeah, and, and I think people, to a certain degree, they say, well, Magic Kingdom certainly does Walt's influence because they've just sort of brought Disneyland over and enhanced it. I think people don't realize, and they should realize, how much of Walt's initial influence has carried over, even to the decisions that are made today. People ask the, the unfair question, well, what would Walt have done? What would Walt have wanted? You're still seeing, and you're still seeing his ideals and his philosophies carry forward, even as new things are being built. Yeah, I think that, um, you're right, that's an unfair question to some degree because in the big picture, one of the things I learned in researching the book was that Walt's real vision, and this is another reason why some of these other areas didn't really play out, by now he'd really been influenced by guys like James Rouse and futurists like Ray Bradbury. He was really thinking about the next progression. He started off with 2D animation, then did 2D movies of real life, the real life adventures, then did 3D animation or fictional life, Disneyland. He was looking to bring real life to the 3D. And that's what Epcot really stood for. And the Magic Kingdom, while he was going, he put uh, Marvin Davis on it. They're going to put all of their great creative efforts into it. That was a way to justify Walt creating this city of tomorrow, which I believe in my heart of hearts was his true goal, why he wanted all of this land. He wanted to show that American cities, because while we are optimistic, there's a lot of rough things going on in our cities that around this time. There were riots and things like that. Walt wanted to show that cities aren't bad places. Okay, Bad things may happen in certain cities, but if cities, if you plan them well, if you design them well, can really be an asset to our country. And so that's why uh, when Epcot 
you start hearing about the Epcot film, you don't hear much about Magic Kingdom, do you? In all those films. You hear about Walt Epcot in the Florida Project Room in Burbank, the big map of Epcot. And so I think when people ask what Walt would have done in terms of theme park-wise, I think you got all the answers at Disneyland. I don't think he intended really to do a lot different in terms of theme parks. I think he was looking for something much different and bigger. The real-life adventure off the screen brought 365 24-7 into the real American life. And we were talking earlier about, you know, well, what if Walt had lived? What if he had built his Epcot the city? You know, how different would Walt Disney World be? And I think people might not realize he made a great point about had Walt carried his original vision and assuming that the money and the technology was able to follow along with him because he was so far ahead of his time, this would be a very, very different place and maybe a place that people wouldn't, not that they wouldn't enjoy as much, but the experience would be different because you're right, it would be centered around Epcot, the city, which is a city first and not, not even an attraction on top of it, but yeah, come on in and see what we're doing here in the city. Come in and visit but not, you're not going to have Space Mountain in the middle of Epcot Center. That's right. I, after writing the book, I've gotten a lot of great feedback from people saying, boy, if, if in 1959, if they just sealed the deal in Palm Beach for the city of tomorrow, Walt would have lived another seven years. You know, they could have got far along. Or what if Walt lived to be 81 or 85, and he would have really got Epcot going? And I say, you know, that's, that's something which is probably true, but understand, uh, if you enjoy riding Soren or Test Track, or Maelstrom, you might not have had the opportunity to experience those because Walt was looking, like you said, Lou, to build a city first. And if you want probably the best example of an attraction that he was looking to build as part of his Epcot city, it's like the back part of the Living with a Land Tour where you go through the greenhouse and see all these futuristic ways of of growing vegetables. And some people think, well, that's not as exciting as Soarin', but that's what he was looking to do. Magic Kingdom would have been here, could have been entertained the heck out of you, had a great time. They, Discovery Island, there would have been other entertainment opportunities. But at Epcot, it would have not been a theme park. It would have been a working city. It would have been an amazing place to observe, but there wouldn't have been queues waiting to see Captain EO or Energy or these other great attractions. Those things might never exist in our Disney experience. And so I say some people, be careful what you wish for, because you might have had a beautiful city and no soaring. Yeah, we've talked about briefly on the show before. Maybe something to revisit in the future is, you know, those original designs for Epcot, and we talked about the the giant map in Burbank. You know, part of that map included an airport and included an industrial park. So, yeah, maybe not, you know, the beautiful kind of place that we have today. But uh, let's go back a, a little bit because, you know, after Walt leaves Missouri, after they leave Missouri and sort of put that on the back burner, they don't settle on Florida, and I think one of the most well-known locations, probably because of, of how far it got and sort of the, the legend of why it fell apart, is St. Louis. And that was one that, again, really got very, very far along in the discussions. Yeah, a lot of uh, publications and people have kind of, kind of mentioned the short story of St. Louis, but we were able to find right in the book a, a real treasure trove of details and kind of dig through some of the urban mythology regarding St. Louis. St. Louis uh, was one of the earliest projects Walt really took serious after um, Disneyland. It got further along than just about all the other projects that weren't built. Walt, obviously, again, the connection to Missouri, the Mississippi River, the kinetic flow of water, again, also very appealed because what would have been built in Missouri was about a five-acre, five-story, roughly, indoor attraction, kind of like Disney Quest on steroids. 
And it, to give you a little frame of reference, if you've been to St. Louis or through it, that's the same time the arch was being built. The old original Bush Stadium was being built. And so none of that existed. And then Disney's Riverfront Square was going to be part of that massive revitalization project. Walt uh, assigned Marvin Davis, some of the great creative folks that he had, to draw sketches. You look back, some of the original sketches, there was like a, a pirate's lair ride, or a mansion that was haunted, or a town center for the USA. Again, a lot of these trends being carried forward. Well, you hear a lot of times a story about how they had a public meeting and August Bush got up and said, well, you know, we're going to serve beer at this place. And Walt was offended. And he said, and that, that conversation, I really believe, occurred. That's not why the project fell apart, though. I mean, Disney was much more sophisticated than that. What happened is, is Disney didn't want to own the dirt. They didn't really even want to own the building. They wanted to basically have the exclusive kind of, it's, you know, it's really similar to Lou is the deal they have with Oriental Land Company. As I was looking at the St. Louis project, the idea is that they operate the creative side and control the creative side, but the other people put the money into the land and the project. That's kind of what Tokyo Disneyland really is. That's what they wanted to do in St. Louis. Well, St. Louis, the city fathers, they weren't quite ready to do this. They wanted Walt and Disney to put a little skin in the game, and they didn't. And so around the time where it started to look like it might unravel, it kind of came back a little bit. But then what happened is Walt really got into the throes of the World's Fair, was putting so much creative energy there. And right about the time where it looked like uh, St. Louis is going to be the make-or-break decision, about 2,000 miles, maybe 1,000 miles to the southeast, he became fixated on Central Florida. Yeah, and, you know, I think a big part of the reason, because all the places that we spoke about, there were individual issues there, um, and again, I think many of us are thankful that it wasn't built in St. Louis because we wouldn't be sitting in a contemporary resort hotel. We would be, you know, sitting somewhere in a in a small corner of a building, possibly. But again, the weather is definitely something that's a factor in all those things. So you're right. Look south, young man, because the weather here in Florida, like today, it's it's always hot <laughs> for the most part. Uh, but Orlando was not certainly not his his very very first choice, and you alluded to earlier. He went down uh, to Palm Beach. And again, that too got very, very far along, so much so that there was concept art once again. Yeah, what happened in 1959, and you got to think, all of this really, as you said, after 1955, got letters from all over the world. Hey, let's bring us a Disneyland because it was so popular. Well, in 59, he had some connections with NBC. His show was going over to NBC from ABC. And NBC was thinking Synergy, kind of like ABC did with, with Disneyland. And so they connected up with John MacArthur and the RCA group, and they got pretty far along, and thinking about maybe a 1,000 or so acres in North Palm Beach County. The deal fell apart for a variety of reasons, even though Walt and the owner of the land, John MacArthur, who is this eccentric billionaire, kind of Florida's versions of Howard Hughes, just a real interesting fellow to read about. And they got a handshake deal. Roy and some of the business people flew back over. Walt flew back to Burbank after spending a week or so with MacArthur, just having a big old time in South Florida. And it looked like the deal wasn't going to work because they didn't really have enough land and some other problems. And they tried to kind of renegotiate a little bit. Well, MacArthur said, would have none of that. He said, where, a, where I'm from, a handshake deal is a final deal. And the deal fell completely apart. Again, this was about four or five years. This is the quickest we see after Disney land opened, a real serious project, and as you alluded to, concept art, feasibility studies by Buzz Price were done. This was, it's just an untold story about how far it got, and uh, when that fell apart, 
think that planted the seed very early on in, I mean, Walt spent a long time in Florida because of that, of, wow, this is a pretty nice place, a pretty warm place. He was actually in, there in December, spent most of the time. So he, he maybe if he'd gone to with MacArthur in July, he might have been, no way. But uh, he was there in December, and it was just a great time. So that seed was planted. So later on, as these other projects didn't pan out, Florida popped up on the map. But it wasn't Orlando early on. Yeah, well, like you said, he spent, relatively speaking, he spent a week here. I mean, that's a long time for him to learn about the area, learn about the location, obviously showing his interest. I think people don't realize that Walt had that handshake deal and, and certainly will never know in Walt's mind was that handshake deal what he wanted and did Roy try and take it or was that handshake deal, okay, we're, we're agreeing in principle, Roy's going to come out and hammer out the details and knowing full well he's going to need uh, much, much more land that maybe he might have shook on. We certainly know that, that Walt was a shrewd businessman as well, too. Um, so it's interesting how that eventually played out. Again, they stay in Florida, not right to Orlando. Nearby Ocala was, again, next stop and one that they visited and revisit later on. Yeah, Ocala was the leader of the clubhouse, if you will, to use a sports analogy. The nice thing about Ocala... It was actually probably roughly just as large as Orlando back then. And it had I-75 running through the heart of it. And Walt realized that if you're going to be in Florida, you're going to have a lot of drive-in traffic. And so the Midwest could easily access it. Now, the problem was, if you're on the eastern seaboard, getting from 95 over to 75, again, it was, again, the state highway. And so, but they thought that we're going to drive in, and they'd done some studies. Ocala, they had actually looked at specific parcels in Ocala. And just think, I mean, we could have been roughly about an hour to the northwest of here. And I think it would have been a huge success in Ocala. But the idea of getting the folks from D.C. and New Jersey and all those things over, when they discovered that I-4 was going to be built connecting 95 and 75, and then when the turnpike was going to be extended up to 75... And so really people coming from Chicago and Detroit and people coming from Philadelphia and Boston and those parts could really crisscross in central Florida. X marked the spot, and granted X is maybe a little bit more where Universal is today, but they found land, they realized we can get a lot of people from both of those two major interstates to crisscross in central Florida, and we don't have to compete with the beach traffic. Palm Beach would have had to do that, and Walt really did not want to be on the coast. Yeah, he knew early on, and, and still to this day, the Northeast is where a large majority of the domestic population comes from. So for business sense alone, uh, you have to move to where the people can get very easily. But this is where uh, I think we see some of those rumors in Florida start to come to pass, not because people are seeing Walt at the local Denny's, but because there's, there's this interest in, and maybe they weren't being as covert as they could have been uh, and the rumors start to swell, and then they start obviously looking over in Orlando. Yeah. Disney, uh, Walt got spotted a couple of times in a couple of uh, November 1963. They had flown down. Him and a bunch of his uh, uh, lieutenants had flown down and toured some land, actually literally looking out the window where we are here in the Contemporary, toured this land where we're standing. in this, And... Uh, he got recognized a couple of times. I mean, he was Walt Disney. And even though they were dressed more casually and they're in this rural part of Florida, he got recognized. And I think that's when they learn and put, kind of put out the, the, uh, the dictate that, well, you don't need to go to Florida too much if we're going to try to buy this land covertly. 
They're actually recognizing a diner when they were in Ocala, and he was using a pseudonym, and the waitress came on and asked for a signature, thinking it was Walt Disney. He signed his, his, his pseudonym there, and whoever's got that probably has a billion-dollar eBay document if that survived. But Because uh, it, it was uh, has the, the Walt famous script. But uh, I think what really uh, played out was that um, he learned that he couldn't come back and so you have guys like Bob Foster and and Don Tatum and and Joe Potter and Paul Hellowell these names which are much less known they came and did a lot of the groundwork when they finally announced it in, in October 65 and Walt came over for the big November 65 announcement he lived for about another year a little over a year and they said it was like keeping a kid's hand out of the cookie jar, keeping him off the plane to come back here. This was his tabla rasa, his blank canvas. And everything going on in the studio, he wanted to come back here, and he did come back some. But before that, they needed to keep him away because there weren't going to be a lot of people recognizing a Bob Foster or Don Tatum. But if Walt was landing, the speculation was Boeing would have gone away, and it would have been, oh, well, it's Disney's the mystery company because why else would Walt Disney be in Central Florida? He did show up and went to Cape Canaveral for a tour of the space, and he was a future in a lot of ways and so he was able to at least that trip kind of put it off as oh I'm going to Cape Canaveral for a visit and he dearly did but he had to tell a little white lie there and say oh I'm just interested in space when in fact that was part of stoking his interest having all these really creative space folks just within an hour or so of the prospective Disney world yeah it all seemed to sort of fall into place for him this was uh, the perfect location for Project X Project Florida Disneyland East Project Summer Fall Winter Spring yeah. all the different names that it adopted over the years and certainly um, you know the story of once they made the decision and those covert purchases of land um, is something we could talk about um, for hours probably because it's very very interesting how they had done it and, and eventually the story getting out and, and what ends up being what we have today but so speculate a little bit for me as I'm sure you have as you were writing um <laughs> Of the many locations, uh, let's take Ocala out of the picture because it's basically Orlando to the northwest. Uh, which of the ones that were considered do you think would have been the most viable, um, or which do you think would have made for the best Walt Disney World, or, or even would have brought us as close to what we have today? Because again, all of them would have been very, very, very different. Fifty-nine in Palm Beach. That the, Miami was a pretty big city already then. You had a large population base there. Flagler had run the uh, railroad down the coast there, so you could get from the eastern seaboard down existing roads and railroad. Um, and it was, while it was near the beach, and that was would have been some drawback there, you were in an area of the country that has nice weather year-round. You have lots of land there and lots of reason for people to go there incidentally. And the beaches there aren't as uh, necessarily tourist popular as some other ones. So I think, boy, a lot of times as I wrote this book and, and read through it and edited it and give talks, I was like, what would have happened if that 1959, if it had a six-year head start, seven-year head start or so on, uh, on Disney World, what would have been different? And so... That is the most, to me, the most fascinating guessing game any Disney fan could engage in because uh, it was uh, the real challenge with saying that Disney World reflects Walt's vision is because Walt lived for about a year after they announced the project, a year, roughly a year or so after they bought the land. I mean, I often tell people when I'm giving my book talks, 
it doesn't sound as good in the marketing materials, but it shouldn't be called Walt Disney World. It should be called Walt and Roy Disney World. Because arguably, Roy had as much influence in this place getting built. It was Walt's idea, but when Walt died, Roy said, we're going to build my brother's park. And Roy almost willed himself to live to 71. He died within two months of this project opening. But he was retiring in 64, 65. And so Walt, if him and Roy had been working on this since 1959, I think having the creative master alive that many more years, it would have been fascinating to see what he could have done. Great place. We all love this. But he would have made even bigger contribution in the history of American history had he had six years to have that blank canvas. And I wonder, too, because all the other locations, for the most part, were so far away in the Northeast and the Midwest, if any of those had been built, and certainly they wouldn't have been... Listen, St. Louis wouldn't have been a Magic Kingdom. Uh, Marceline might not have been. It wouldn't have been. If he was able to build something there and realized this is not not Disneyland East, this is a, a different type of attraction altogether, if eventually he would have come down here anyway. If we would have had another location, just like, you know, the consideration for Disney's America wouldn't have been a Walt Disney World. It would have been another very different kind of theme park we know of his love of uh, what a patriot he was. So you wonder if he'd built something in St. Louis or in the icy tundra of the Meadowlands (laughs) right next to Giant Stadium. um, Would we still have something like this at some point, maybe a decade or two later? Yeah. You know... um I look back at some of the Disney America stuff. Uh, a couple of uh, web writers have done a nice series re- reviewing Disney's America and reading those. That was really interesting to me because that was shown that Disney was very serious, but for some political problems, that would have gotten built. And that would have been a great laboratory to see what a year-round park would have looked like. Because some guys like Card Walker, real luminaries in Disney history, are pushing hard for D.C. And D.C. is warm enough and it's near the central, it's not too far up the coast, but it's not too far down the coast. I think it would have been fascinating to see if Disney's America, how it would have played out, because that would have maybe told us whether if they had selected D.C. Because if you're asking non-Florida projects, I would have said D.C. That would have been the place to build northern Virginia, southern Maryland type area. And that probably project, if they would have built it on the scale of America, could have really worked. I mean, a lot of people go to Colonials Williamsburg in the winter. And that's that's interesting because Walt really had a strong affinity. One of the last trips he made, one of the last awards he got was going over to Colonial Williamsburg. And while he may not have like necessarily been for the architecture of it, he was really interested in, in how cities were being developed and went over there. And, and Williamsburg might have been, a uh, the way they've turned it, Colonial Williamsburg, a little bit of a, uh, a glimpse into what Walt might have imagined and Disney's America kind of imagined for a project there. Yeah, and you know, the one thing about some of these other locations, like a Washington, you know, the one thing that when they came here was the blessing of buying this swampland is that Orlando was not Orlando. Orlando was orange groves, and they're really... So when Walt Disney World was built for many, many years, there wasn't... There weren't any other distractions outside. This was the vacation kingdom of the world. This is where you came, and you parked your car, and you stayed, and you didn't go anywhere else, whereas... Palm Beach, Washington, D.C., anywhere else, there were outside distractions. There was Williamsburg, there was the Capitol, there was the Smithsonian. So it almost works out better for them that there w- that nothing did get put there because, again, until some of those other wiki-watchy or whatever gets built down the yeah. street, I don't even go, uh, gets built, you know, this was, when you came to Walt Disney World, this is where you went, this is where you stayed and played. Although what's really interesting about the, the D.C. part, and 
and I think there's a book waiting out there to be written by someone. I don't know who it is, but you know, it's like the salesman that won't say no, or the the girl maybe you ask out over and over, and eventually, Disney's interest as a company in Northern Virginia, because now as they've announced, they've bought land, they own land at National Harbor Project. It's like they won't take no for an answer in the D.C. area. Uh, the Disney's project back in '63 it didn't work out there, and America didn't work out. And now they're looking at a you know potential DVC Disney Resort. They haven't announced what the plans are, but they keep going back to our nation's capital. And so, I don't know. I don't know what the string is there. Walt was a great patriot. Walt was you know an American, and maybe there's something about that. But it's so interesting to see. That's just another example of. Of Disney is the company where these themes never really end. They may get postponed, but it looks like we're finally going to get that Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. project within the next five years. And it's going to be smaller, and it's going to be at National Harbor, but they'll have their presence that they've long thought they maybe should have. Well, because here in Florida, it was, you know, if we build it, we know they will come, whereas now, let's go to where the people are. The people are in that Northeast, they're in Washington, and something smaller like that would be great, especially for the people maybe that can't come down to Walt Disney World but want to get that. And look, they've done it before. They went into Times Square. I mean, they, they completely revitalized Times Square years ago when it was a very non-Disney place to be. So uh, I'm intrigued about the idea of Disney expanding to the Northeast and giving people up there another destination uh, to go to. Yeah, they, I mean, they've taken stabs with things like Disney Quest and uh, in Chicago, and that didn't really work out, and they had looked at maybe at Philadelphia, they actually had dug out some land there. I think what happened is it's not that an indoor attraction in the Northeast can't work. That concept really wasn't the right concept, and hopefully they're going to find uh, the sweet spot with this National Harbor Project and build something which uh, can work up there. Because you're right, at some point, um, you come to Disney World enough and you get to know it, People are, I think, looking, even here in the States, they're looking for the next great Disney experience, and it may be something different. And that's why I think some people are skeptical about Hawaii. I think Hawaii is going to be popular because it's going to be a new Disney experience. And I think National Harbor Project, depending on what they build, is going to be a a new Disney experience. And just think, maybe you can't come down for a week at Disney World if you live in Philly or Jersey or Boston. But you can hop on the Acela or hop on your car and take the, the interstate down and spend the weekend at Disney's National Harbor Project. I hope they build it. I can't wait to get down there, up there if they do. That might be my only reason to head back up to the Northeast, <laughs> being a former Jersey guy. I don't know if I would have gone back to the Meadowlands, but, uh, Chad, there are, I mean, these are fascinating stories. There are so many more to tell. Um, in your book, you've had a chance to, again, I think it's the lawyer background in us. You've done your due diligence. You've spoken to the people who have been part of these projects, who have been part of the construction and the creation of everything we have here. You talk about, you know, turning the swampland into the Magic Kingdom, Reedy Creek, the, the, some of the environmental challenges and the legal challenges and everything else that they faced, uh, and the people who very much are able to relay those stories. And that's what makes the book fascinating, uh, makes for additional stories, maybe come on and we'll tell some of the other stories because I, I, I want people to understand and appreciate the history and what it took to build. This isn't Epcot the city, but it is a city. It is a 24-7, 365 city uh, and truly an, an amazing feat from the selection of the spot to the creation of it environmentally and, and everything else they have today. So Chad Emerson, the book is Project Future. I'll put a link into the uh, to where you can purchase the book right on the website as well as to the Project Future book website. Chad, thanks so much. Thanks, Lou. Had a great time. 
It's time to play Listener Fact or Fiction, because as you know, I've said from the very beginning that I want the show to be interactive, and I want you to be as much a part of the show as you'd like to be. So whether it's sending in a question for me to answer on the listener email segment, calling in with a voicemail from the parks, coming to meets in Walt Disney World, or even suggesting a segment and joining me for an entire segment on the show. That's not possible for everybody, but so what I thought I'd like to do was combine my love of sharing Walt Disney World trivia and history and fun facts with the ability to have contests on the show and get you involved. So as a result, we have listener fact or fiction. What I've done is I've asked you over the past few weeks and months to send in your name and phone number, and I would randomly call a listener to play, where I'd ask them 10 true or false trivia questions about Walt Disney World, have some fun, give them a chance to win some prizes as well. Tonight is just that night where I've picked this time completely randomly, and from all the entries I've received to date, I pulled out one listener's name. We're going to call her to play Fact or Fiction right now. This is not looking good. Please leave your message for... No sale. Now, unfortunately, that was the first name I drew out. Because she wasn't home, I'm going to pick another one out randomly, give her or him a shot. I'll put this person, the first person's name, back into the pool, so don't worry, you'll still have another chance. Okay, so I've randomly selected another name from all the Factor Fiction entries. Let's give her a call and see if she's home to play. Hello? Hi, is Jenny Chervin there, please? This is? Jenny, this is Lou Mangello from WDW Radio. How are you? Good, how are you? Good. I'm hoping this is a good time to call because I'm calling you to play Listener Factor Fiction. Oh, oh my God, you got to be kidding. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so hopefully you're not either eating dinner or grocery shopping yep. or taking a spinning class or something. No, I was just playing a wipeout on Wii, and we can pause that. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for, for sending in your name. And I'll tell you, Jenny, this is either a good or a bad time. You were actually the third person I've had to call because the first two names I drew out of the hat were not uh, were not home. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, look at me. All right. So tell me, um, tell me where you're from. I'm from Joliet, Illinois. Uh, awesome. Awesome. Um, and when are uh, you a, obviously must be a big time Disney fan. When's the first time you went and how often do you get a chance to get back? Um, I went in the early 80s when Epcot was just being built, when they were building the Silver Sphere, the golf ball. Okay. That's the first time I remember going to Disney. And I was just there again this past April. Right. I saw in, your, uh, in the email that you would send and uh, unfortunately I didn't get a chance to meet up with you guys when you were there. Hope you had a good time. Where'd you stay? Um, actually, my parents have a place in Clearwater, Florida, and we stay there. That we just drive the hour and twenty minutes out to Disney with my husband and my son, and we stay the night. We stayed at the Pop Century nice. last time we were there for a night. Nice. All right. So, if, forgetting your parents' place in Clearwater, money being no object, what's your favorite place to stay on property? If money was no option, I would love to stay at the Grand Floridian. <laughs> Very nice. And you have to have a favorite restaurant. You know I need to ask you about your favorite place to eat. 
food. <laughs> Remember, uh, rides are rides are things you do in between meals. So, okay, I would have to say our newest. Favorite this place to eat. We ate it the first time in April. We had breakfast. It's Polynesian for the Mickey and Friends breakfast. Oh, nice! Very nice. That was great. Awesome, awesome. How long do you think you've been listening to the show for? Oh, probably a year and a half. I'm addicted. Excellent. So, all right. So you've heard you've heard me play Factor Fiction in the past. Yes. All right. So you know how it goes. I'm going to ask you ten true or false trivia questions. Uh, depending on how many you get right, I'll give you um, some valuable and not so valuable prizes at the end. How's that? <laughs> and remember, all right, listen, this is just about having fun, So, but bring your A-game nevertheless. Okay, I'm right, ready. Here we go. Your first question, fact or fiction. When Walt Disney World first opened, the Walt Disney World Railroad Station had only one station stop. Fact or fiction. Come on, one. We rolled that when we were there in April. Uh, Go ahead, talk it I'm out. Gonna... There's talk it out. There's three stations now. How many were there? Was there only one when the Magic Kingdom first opened? All right, when they first opened, they didn't have quite as many rides as they have now. So I would wonder if they would take them on a continuous loop. Or they still have to stop to get people back farther in the park. Oh, all right. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say fiction. I'm going to say that they had to have another stop. Close, close. You were very, very close, Jenny. I, I, actually, when it first opened, there was only one train station stop, and that was on Main Street, oh. USA. It didn't last oh. long. For it was only about eight months uh, before they added another station in. Frontierland, which was right near Pecos Bill, which actually ended up being torn down in 1990. They rebuilt it because Splash Mountain was constructed. And then obviously the third one was built in 1988 for Mickey's, where Toontown Fair is currently. But that's all right. Listen, that's okay. We're just getting warmed up. Don't worry. No biggie. All right. No biggie. All right. Have you ever been to any of the Disney water parks? Oh, my God. One time, a long time ago, my dad splurged, and that's something odd for my dad to do because he's already splurged on Disney. We went to River Country. Okay. Old school. I love it. This the cheapest one to go to. River Country, a thing of the past. So Yes. But now we have Typhoon Lagoon and Blizzard Beach. And let me oh. ask you this. Fact or fiction? The mascot for Typhoon Lagoon... It's called Laguna Gator. I didn't know it had a mascot. I know that there's a like a ship or something, a tugboat or something. I know I've I've seen. All right. I'm going to, that sounds like, I mean, that's got a ring to it. That sounds like some Disney would, would make up. I'm going to say fact. Awesome. See, that's the way to do it. That's the way to talk it out. Because Laguna yeah. Gator is the mascot for Typhoon Lagoon. Uh, friends with the Ice Gator, who was the mascot for Blizzard Beach. Now, here's a bonus question that gets you absolutely no points or no free gifts. Who was okay. the mascot for River Country? River Country. 
Because you had like pools in there, but then you could also swim in the river. So think it's early 1970s, not a lot of new characters, maybe somebody no. old school. Uh, maybe it's, I'm going to guess, I don't know. Um, it's, maybe it's one of the original gang from the Disney, who would fit there. Keep going. I, don't right. say, I, didn't, I didn't know it wouldn't be Mickey or Minnie. I say that like Donald and Goofy, Pluto. Pluto, uh, Donald... I'm going to go with, this seems like a goofy kind of place. I'm going to say goofy. Let me tell you something. You're good, because when you talk it out, you get to the right answer. Goofy was the mascot for River Country. Right. You yes. even, he actually used to be, you can find him walking around there. Um, Max, his son, sometimes would uh, would be a walk-around character there as well. Kudos to you. You do get extra credit for that in the grand scheme of things. Okay, let's stick with, let's stick with a little bit of the water parks, but let's talk about the mountains. Um, Mount Mayday is taller than Splash Mountain. Fact or fiction? Boy. That is a hard one. Mount Mayday is a typhoon lagoon. It's the tallest mountain there. Is it taller than Splash Mountain? Splash Mountain. I'm gonna go. I totally have no clue, so I'm gonna say uh, Mountain May Day is taller. So you're gonna say fact that Mount May Day is taller than Splash? Yeah, fact. It's it's either you deduced it in your head or a great guess because Mount May Day is 95 feet tall and Splash Mountain is 87 feet tall. Yes, I thought about maybe being a water slide that they'd want to go. If, if there, I don't know if there's a water slide on that or anything or something, and they'd want to be up really high to come down there. Your deductive reasoning is is paying out for you big time. So I think that you're I, I think you're three for three because you got goofy, you worked out goofy. So I gave you credit for number two. All right, you're three for three. Let's keep on going. Let's go back to the Magic Kingdom since you're old school. Okay. Mickey's Mickey's Toontown Fair, soon to be a part of Fantasyland, was right. originally originally. Known as Mickey's Starland. Fact or fiction? That is fact. You see, you should have thought it out a little bit more. It Originally, it was known as Mickey's Birthday Land. And then it became Mickey's Starland in 1990. Oh, I you. So you forgot Mickey's yeah, Birthday Land. That's all right. You're still, you're, listen, you're still three for four. That's like 75%. So, all right. We're going to stay in the Magic Kingdom. Tell me, fact or fiction? The cars on the Tomorrowland Speedway have a maximum speed that's faster than the maximum speed of a Jungle Cruise boat. So basically, the cars on the Tomorrowland Speedway go faster than the Jungle Cruise boats. Fact or fiction? Now, I rolled both of those last time. So, the first time I ever rode on the Tomorrowland Speedway ever. Oh, that's a tough one. Because I don't know, on the boat, I didn't know it seemed like it kind of go slow because I had to think you'd have to, like, because they slow down because you got to kind of see things as you're going along. The animals, the cave, and there's so much to look at. They don't want to zip you by. You want to take time to kind of look at everything. 
And then when you're on the speedway, you're kind of going at your own pace and you're trying to put pedals to the metal and you don't like race somebody. Oh. Ugh. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to say. It's fat. Fat. Listen. <laughs> However, you're getting to the answer. It's working because the the top speed of the Tomorrowland Indy, well, former Indy Speedway cars is only seven miles an hour, which doesn't sound like it's very fast, except when you're small like me, it seems like you're speeding along. But the Jungle Cruise boats only go about 2.18 miles per hour. So the the Tomorrowland cars actually go a lot faster than the Jungle Cruise boats. So very good. You're four for five. You're four for five. All right. So have you been to or have you seen as every American should, the American Adventure in Epcot? A long, long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. All right. Well, My we'll dad's get, name. Let's, let, let, and I love the Star Wars reference. Nice. <laughs> Fact or fiction? You have to think about this one. Yeah. The only U.S. presidents in audio-animatronic form in the American Adventure that are depicted during the term of their presidency are Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. Oh, that that, that one is super, super hard. So this could just be a guess, but there's only, so the fact or fiction, the only U.S. presidents in audio-animatronic form that are depicted during their presidency are Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. I have no clue whatsoever. I'm totally just going to guess. I'm going to say fiction. Listen, you had a 50 50 chance. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for you well on this one. Uh, but because that, that is a hard one, you have to sort of know the show. But I just, I think this is just a cool trivia fact to share. The only two are Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt is speaking with John Muir about the beauty of America and, and Yosemite Park. Well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is giving the only thing we have to fear is fear itself speech. Now, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who obviously were presidents, are also depicted as well. But Washington is seen crossing the Delaware during the Revolutionary War, but he was still just a general, while Jefferson was writing the Declaration of Independence also before he was elected president. So you may not have gotten it right, but hopefully you've learned something along the way. All right, moving on, regrouping. Number seven, the first Future World attraction to be added to the park after the opening date was Horizons. Fact or fiction? So the first attraction to be added after the park's opening was Horizons. Fact or fiction? That's the one with the dinosaurs. Ugh. Now, I'm going to go and I'm going to say fiction because because of the, the ride of the ball. <laughs> <Basic> <laughs> Again, it doesn't matter how you get there. Your answer is right. But actually, here's the reason why. Journey into Imagination was the first attraction to be added after Epcot's opening day. The pavilion, the Imagination Pavilion, opened with the park on October 1st, 1982, but that only had Magic Journeys and the Image Works in there. Journey into Imagination didn't open until March of 1983. Horizons, the entire pavilion, opened up later on that year, 
as well as some other things. But technically, the first attraction to be added to Epcot after its opening day was the original journey and, and the best journey into imagination. Ah. That's all right. We're let's moving on. We're moving. Let's go back to let's go back to the Magic Kingdom. That's really where you shine. In the Carousel of Progress, Jimmy, Jimmy, is dressed as George Washington. Now I'll give you a hint. I'm obviously talking about the scene in Carousel of Progress during the fall when Halloween is being celebrated and they're all getting ready to go to the Halloween parties. What is little Jimmy dressed as? Is he dressed as George Washington? Fact or fiction? Oh, gosh. He's on the left-hand side of the screen, behind one of the scrims. It's another Halloween in the fabulous 40s. Yeah. Um, I don't... He's carving a pumpkin. I'm going to say... I would, I would think you better dress up as something else. I don't, I don't know. A kid that age. I don't know. Something like Batman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to say fiction. <laughs> You're right. It is fiction, although he's not dressed as Batman <laughs> for a variety of reasons. But he is dressed as a werewolf. That's awesome. And actually, you can hear him. He howls at one point as he's getting ready and he's getting dressed. So again, <laughs> the logic... Might be somewhat flawed, Jenny, but you're getting there. You're getting to the right answer, so that's awesome. All right, over back to Epcot, and let's go to the Living Seas, or the Seas with Nemo and Friends, as it's known as now. And tell me, fact or fiction, the coral inside the Living Seas tank is actually man-made. Fact or fiction? Oh. Oh, this isn't going to be a man-made. Talk I'm it out. Gonna, um, I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, it's man-made because it's Disney World and they had to make it. <laughs> I love it. You're right. It is. It is true. Uh, the, the, all the coral, quote unquote, coral in the Living Seas tank is actually man-made, and the reason why, because think about it, coral is a living thing. So if it was real, it would have taken about a hundred years to grow to the size that it is now. And yeah, like Disney, they make a lot of the, even put it this way. Here's another fact for you: all the food for the marine life in the tank. It's also manufactured. Um, it includes things like dog food and complex amino acids, and vitamins. But again, the food, like the coral, also man-made. So very good. Very good. All right. All right. Let's see. Uh, your last fact or fiction question. Okay. The largest deliberate hidden Mickey, probably in the world, definitely in Florida, is not located inside Walt Disney World property. And when I say deliberate hidden Mickey, I mean it can't be, you know, the accidental shape of a couple of big rocks or something like that. This was an intentional hidden Mickey that was created. The largest deliberate hidden Mickey is not located inside Walt Disney World property. 
Well, the biggest hit Mickey that I can remember seeing was this. What's that? The, the, going on the way to Disney, you know, always see when we get close to the park, the the power line and that big Mickey Mouse head, the silver Mickey Mouse head that it goes to, through to hold those power lines. Um, that's the biggest thing I can think of. So I'm going to say that that is that that's fast because the biggest one is, is outside the park. <laughs> so I'm laughing. First of all, that was that's great to think about that one. I think a lot of people probably think of the hidden mick that was created inside Disney's Hollywood Studios from overhead that changed once they built Sunset Boulevard. But you're right, the power lines there uh, outside uh, the, the sort of the confines of the theme park area. You're right, there is a um, a tower that is created in the shape of a hidden Mickey. Your answer is right, although that's actually not the biggest one. Because the largest deliberate hidden Mickey was created by cast members back in 1992. In honor of Walt Disney World's 20th anniversary, they planted more than 50,000 pine trees across 50 acres to form this giant hidden Mickey. Now, the land is no longer owned by Disney, but that hidden Mickey forest is still out there over in Lake County. And what I'll do is I'll put a picture of it and a link to a Google map so you can actually see this from the air. I mean, it's huge. It's like a thousand feet across. So um, unless somebody knows of one that's bigger, that is the largest hidden Mickey definitely in Florida, probably in the world. So again, flawed logic, but you get to the right answer. So good for you. (laughs) So I was not keeping track, but I think that you probably got, what do you say? Maybe seven out of the 10, eight out of the 10, somewhere around there. That sounds good. That sounds good. good. Listen, it's all about having fun, but I'm still going to send you a WDW radio button, a luggage tag, audio guides to Walt Disney World, and some Celebrations magazine, and how about a Walt Disney World trivia book as well? Oh my god, I feel like going to the lottery! Yay! <laughs> awesome! It's like the Powerball, but a lot, lot smaller and less valuable. It's valuable to me because it's Disney! Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm so happy. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for playing and being such a good sport. I had so much fun hearing you sort of talk out and think out your ways to getting to the answers. So I think that was great. I hope you had a good time. I did. It was great. It was like the president of the United States just called me. I can't wait. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm happy you're home. I'm happy you had fun. Hopefully you learned a little something along the way. And uh, I hope to have the chance to meet you and your family one of the day one of these days in in Walt Disney World. Yes, that would be great. Maybe someday. Someday. Awesome. Well please when I was far. Definitely. Well do me a favor, email me your address. I'll get your prize pack out to you right away. Will do. Thank you so much. You oh, made my day. Thank you so much. I really had a good time doing this with you. Thank you. Alright, have a good night. You too. Bye bye. Bye. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Thanks also to my guests, Chad Emerson, the author of Project Future. I'll have information and links to where you can order the book and find out more on this week's show notes at WDWRadio.com. 
Congratulations also to Jenny Turvin for playing Listener Fact or Fiction. If you want to have a chance to play, email me at lou at wdwradio.com with fact or fiction in the subject line and include your name and your phone number. And who knows, you may be the next person I call for a chance to play on the show. Be sure to come by the site, check out older episodes of the show for more history and other detailed looks at current and former attractions in my DSI series. And if there's something that you want to see or hear talk about on the show, also email me or post in the comments section on this or any other episode. If you like these series where we talk about the history of some of the attractions and the details, you might also like my audio guide to Walt Disney World series on CD or instantly downloadable files where I take you through a virtual walking tour through all of the Walt Disney World theme parks beginning with the Magic Kingdom. I have Main Street USA, Adventureland, and Fantasyland out now. Liberty Square is coming very, very soon. You can order those as well as my Walt Disney World trivia books right on the website at wdwradio.com. There, take a look for some new videos coming out, including a Captain EO video I released last week and some more new videos coming this week. You can also find discussion forums, photo galleries, new daily blog posts, so, so much more. Again, you can also find these at wdwradio.com. There you can also get a link to the free WDW Radio iPhone app, ways to connect with me through Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, FriendFeed, and so, so much more. I'm also getting ready to announce something new that I've been working on, as well as a new contest. So definitely stay tuned and stay connected to the way that's best for you to get the news fast. A couple of announcements about upcoming events. Don't forget, if you're going to be in Walt Disney World on Saturday, July 24th, the July Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World is going to be held at the Contempo Cafe on the fourth floor of Disney's Contemporary Resort. Anybody and everybody is welcome to attend. We're going to start at 11 o'clock, probably be there for two, three hours. Please come by, say hello, hang out a bit. Maybe we'll go to the parks afterwards uh, and definitely come by, get a chance to meet some other listeners as well. It's inside, it's air-conditioned, and because it's outside the parks, you don't have to worry about having a park ticket to attend. Uh, If you are thinking about coming, please come by RSVP on the Facebook page or in the forums Links to both of those right on the website or at meetofthemonth.com. August, I will be having a Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World. Haven't picked out the exact date or time yet, probably close to the end of the month. But if you're going to be up in the Pacific Northwest, please come by the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet on Saturday, August 14th in Linwood, Washington. That You can visit PNW Mouse Meet for more information. But there's a bunch of new announcements that Don, the organizer, just came out with if if some of these things weren't enough maybe the addition of author Jeff Curdy you know him from the Since the World Began Disney books as well so so much more he's an author he's a historian he's also going to be donating which is a real great thing on his part 250 for the first 250 paid guests they will receive one of the following either his Art of Mulan or the Art of Bugs Life books in addition to Jeff Curdy there's also going to be Disney legend Bob Gurr Margaret Carey, the original model for Tinkerbell, Deb Wills, Dave Lesjack, Jonathan Dichter, other authors, podcasters, it's going to be pin trading, attraction vehicle photo opportunities, Disney Anna vendors, Hidden Mickey trivia challenges, displays, and so, so much more. Again, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be talking. I'm also going to have a booth. 
We'll probably be broadcasting live from that meet as well. So if you can't make it out to Washington, stay tuned to WDW Radio Live. But for more information, visit pnwmousemeet.com. Now, coming in September is Destination D, September 24th and 25th. Disney just announced a scavenger hunt on 26th, so it is going to be a full weekend. I am telling you that we are going to be planning another special event for WDW Radio listeners that weekend, and I will have further information uh, and specifics about that as well. But for the time being, if you are thinking about coming out, Mouse Fan Travel, who, as you know, is my sponsor and my official and recommended travel provider, does have a special Disneyland Resort deal that features exclusive rates and a little bit of extra magic as well. From September 23rd through the 26th at the Disneyland Hotel, a standard view room is $175 per night, plus taxes and resort fees. And you can also get tickets from from them as well. Disneyland's having a special until the 26th where you get two additional days and nights free when they buy a three-day, three-night room and ticket package. Again, for more information, you can contact Mouse Fan Travel about that. And again, I'll have information about some other things that we'll be doing, specifically just for WDW Radio listeners as well. In October, Conga Louche is October 8th through the 12th. I've talked about this in the past. There's going to be tours from Jim Corcus. I'll be giving a tour on Saturday and Sunday. There's a show and sale. Q&A with the Adventures Club cast, lots of surprises, but most importantly, there's going to be a dinner and private show after Disney's Hollywood Studios closes on the stage of the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular. For more information, to buy tickets, to join the WDW Radio tribe, visit congaloosh.org. Again, links to that in this week's show notes and, of course, at meetofthemonth.com. And we are counting down the days Till February 27th, that is the WDW Radio Cruise aboard the all-new Disney Dream. For more information, visit WDWRadioCruise.com. Don't forget, in addition to playing Listener Factor Fiction, if you have any emails that you want me to, or questions that you want me to answer on the show, you can email me at Lou at WDWRadio.com. Or if you want to be heard on the air with a question, a comment, even just a saying hello from the parks, you can call the toll-free voicemail line at 888-703-2171. Now, if you like or want to discuss anything that you heard on this show or in past shows, come by the site at wdwradio.com. Click on this week's show link and post in the comments. There's no need to sign up or register, but I'd love to get your feedback on the segment with Chad or Listener Factor Fiction. You can also, on the site, sign up for a free newsletter. And again, talk about, be part of the discussion about anything Disney-related that you'd like to. I have lots of new things that I'm working on, in addition to the Liberty Square Audio Guide, a new contest, and some other stuff. So again, definitely try and stay connected, stay tuned to the show notes, to the show, Twitter, Facebook, so much more, all those links right on the homepage of the website. And of course, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out if you're on Twitter that you're listening. Share the link to the show on Facebook. Discuss it there and go review the show on iTunes if you enjoy it. And of course, my friends, thank you again for taking the time out of your day and your week to tune in. I really do appreciate it. So until next time, remember to take that first step towards pursuing your passion. And once you do, always, always 
Keep moving forward. Have a great, great week, everybody. See ya. Hey, Lewis Todd from Jersey again. And I'm going to try and fit everything into this message before the time runs out. First of all, uh, really, my wife and I are definitely looking forward to finally having the chance to see, meet you at a meet of the month uh, in July on uh, July 24th. That's going to be awesome. We're looking forward to it. Speaking of my wife... Uh, because of your podcast and her niece person did the magic and she's always into it but we have gone back and we are now listening to every podcast I have listened to them all once already listened to every podcast starting yes with number one my wife is listening to every one of them and she's loving it and um, it's it's uh, addicting um, lastly I want to say that unfortunately this is uh, a personal thing um, I had an uncle pass away this past weekend, and um, I bring it up because while he may not have been as big a Disney fan as uh, every one of us, but he definitely appreciated what they did for what the parks do and the level of everything that they give it to, to the guests. And he made it a point to go there yearly with his grandchildren, and he uh, shared that Disney magic to whatever extent he could. And he made sure that they went there yearly, and they enjoyed themselves every time. They were at all different types of resorts and stuff. So to my Uncle, uncle Charlie, thank you for believing in magic. Um, I'll miss you. And on uh, a personal note, uh, look, I, I'm finishing my vegetables now. Um, anyway, Lou, thank you for indulging my little personal thing there. But uh Look forward to every podcast and uh, reading every magazine. And thank you for everything you do. We love it. Keep doing it. Keep. We'll keep listening. We'll keep reading. Uh, see ya. Hey, listeners. This is Jeff from Columbus, Ohio. I just caught a screening of uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty that was here in town and uh, encouraging everybody to go check it out. I assume if you're listening to this show, uh, you're the type of person who would really enjoy it. Uh, it is in a limited release, it seems. So if you go to the website, I think it's wakingsleepingbeauty.com or something like that. You can look it up. Um, you can catch all the uh, locations for it. But uh, it was really good. Uh, go check it out. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Lou. Hey, this is Jeff from Columbus, Ohio. Hey, we're wrapping up our stay here at the Polynesian. And I just wanted to say it was nice talking to you last Saturday uh, at the meet of the month. Actually, um, I was the guy who bumped into you on the monorail. I was heading over, and uh, there you were on the monorail with your kids. <laughs> anyway, hey, first of all, listeners, he's not that short. And second, Lou, Lou he, does, he doesn't just talk the talk when it comes to Disney. Uh, I walked in with him and his kids, and, like, we got in there, and first thing, like, he stopped and talked to the mayor and his wife, and then he traded some pins with a cast member and uh, stopped for a picture with Snow White. This was all like the first five minutes. So, anyway, thanks for uh, stopping, chatting with me, and uh, keep on doing what you do. Have a magical day. See ya. Hey, Lou, this is Andy from discoverepcot.com. I was just calling to tell you that I've discovered a treat inside of Epcot that nobody else knows about. If you go to Mexico and go to La Cava del Tequila and ask Pepe, for a scorpion shot, you can eat an actual scorpion in Epcot. I've done this twice. They taste just like chicken. And best part of all, it's soaked up in the tequila, 
So it's a treat both ways, and you get to follow it with the shot. Just thought I'd let you know, you always cover food, and I figured that you might want to cover this too. Have a nice day. Hey, Lou, it's John from Atlanta. I know I haven't called in in a while, but I'm just uh, finishing up listening to the podcast, uh, Podcast 176, about the Cinderella carousel. Love the information. Love what you do. Love how much passion you have in each of the Disney attractions. That you know, go back in time and talk about them. And you know, some of the extinct attractions like the Timekeeper. Uh, I can remember going to Disneyland where I grew up uh, with my dad and everything, and uh, constantly riding one of my favorite attractions, which is Star Tours. You know, always having to get the front row and or. 20,000 leagues under the sea, and those are magical and amazing memories that I will cherish for a lifetime and hope to be able to share with my kids someday. I just want to say thanks for all you've done, Lou. I hope hope you had a fantastic 4th of July holiday, and um, can't can't wait till the next podcast comes out, and I'm going to similarly buy your audio guides and... Get ready to hit to Orlando in September. You know, I know it's only a couple months away, but uh, I can't wait. I'm already getting the Disney jingle, the Disney magic, and getting ready to go have some Disney fun. Thanks, Lou, for all you've done, man, and um, keep up the good work. And like I said, look forward to hearing your new podcast, guys. Um, but if you can dream it, we can live it. That was always Walt's motto and everything. Um, and everything. And, Hope you all have a great, wonderful week and have a magical time, and take care. Bye. Hey, Lou, Goofy Fitness Dad Michael here, and I'm calling to uh, have a couple of statements. Um, I think last week's podcast, maybe the one before, somebody left a message about the carrot cake cookies saying that they uh, wanted to go back and get more and more and get them again, and I, I really agree. Those things, man, I'm here right now, and it's, it's like they put crack in them or something. They're so good. I just have been wanting to go back and get more. Um, I, I love the show, and I've been at the Magic Kingdom, and I, I couldn't help myself but just stopping and observing the uh, the carousel and just seeing all the different details that you uh, talked about, uh, or the both of y'all talked about um, on the last show. And I really uh, paid a, a special attention to the horses and the different things of the carousel that I would have overlooked before. And I got to see Captain EO. I was, I was surprised at um, how few people were actually in the theater. It was an incredible show. I really enjoyed it, and it, it brought me back to, to my childhood, my youth, when I saw that uh when it was original. So thanks for the show. I love it, Lou. Keep up the great work. Hi, Lou. This is Vicki from Orange, Connecticut. We're here at the Fantastic Show waiting for it to start. The crowd's going wild. There's everyone's doing the wave, and we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. And we also went and saw the fireworks at the 4th of July Magic Kingdom, and it was great. you ever have the opportunity to go, tell your crowd that's listening to you to definitely go. Thanks, and we love your show. Bye. Hey, Lou and WDW Radio fans. This is Colin from downtown Hollywood Studios on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset Boulevard here waiting for the V Parade today. whole family came down to Florida once again and um, just enjoying it. And, of course, uh, me and my son had to go and find the traditional ultimate pickle at one of the produce carts down the uh, Sunset Boulevard road there. Great afternoon snack, a nice cold crispy pickle from... Disney World here, uh, but just calling to say hi and uh, keep the show going. Thanks, Lou. 
Hi, Lou. Um, this is Tammy, Voyage of Ariel. Um, I'm actually starting from the very beginning to listen to all your podcasts. And I'm on show number six, where you guys are talking about Roger Rabbit. And I first wanted to say, uh, when I heard what you guys were talking about, those boxes, um, I think it was any of the Honey, I Shrunk Kids movie set. I remember those boxes. And my dad and I, every time we go, we go over that shopping area and we look for the boxes and they're never there. And we know they're not going to be there, but we're just wondering why they took it out. Now I know why. I, we thought that it was a part of the of the movie or some sort. Um, so anyways, uh, have a great weekend and have a great 4th of July. And uh, the Fox people and your chat last night was amazing. So, okay, bye.